This episode is brought to you by our incredible community of listener supporters on Patreon. Our Patreon offers listeners exclusive archival content, extended episodes, and access to community conversations diving deeper with past guests. Your monthly pledge ensures that For the Wild has the funding to keep producing informative, thoughtful, and rooted conversations and programming. All funding supports our small team of creatives, podcast production, and special For the Wild projects like our zines and slow study courses. To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild, or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for the wild.world slash donate. Hello and welcome to For the Wild podcast. I'm Ayana Young. Today we are speaking with Sandor Katz. Every kind of organism is interacting intimately with its environment as it feeds itself. And we have tried to take ourselves out of this equation. And supposedly we have liberated ourselves by not having to spend each day procuring the food resources to get through that day. But, you know, in in fact, it has alienated us from our environments and careless about them. Sandor Alex Katz is a fermentation revitalist. He is the author of five books, Wild Fermentation, The Art of Fermentation, The Revolution Will Not Be Microwaved, Fermentation as Metaphor, and his latest, Fermentation Journeys. Sandor's books, along with the hundreds of fermentation workshops he has taught around the world, have helped to catalyze a broad revival of the fermentation arts. A self-taught experimentalist who lives in rural Tennessee, the New York Times calls him one of the unlikely rock stars of the American food scene. Sandor is the recipient of a James Beard Award and other honors. For more information, check out his website at wildfermentation.com. Well, Sandor, thank you so much for joining us today. Myself, as well as all the For the Wildians, are such fans of your work, and this has been definitely on my bucket list to talk to you for many, many years as I have your books on my shelf. So thank you for joining us and uh, spending a bit of time with us today. Well, it is my pleasure. And um, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be talking with you today. Mm, Me too. Well, as we settle in to this conversation, I want to start off by paying homage to your long history of fermentation and the ways that it has totally transformed human culture and civilization across the world. Um, so maybe we could start off with how has your study of fermentation also been a study of humanity? My my interest in fermentation, you know, at one level has gone on for my entire life, uh, certainly since long before I was thinking about fermentation. And it's just... Um, you know, embedded in some of the foods of my uh, heritage. So, uh, you know, my grandparents were all um, immigrants from Eastern Europe. You know, they all ended up in the New York area, which is where I grew up. And I grew up loving pickles. And the pickles that my family was eating, you know, I now understand were not made by pouring vinegar over cucumbers, but rather were made by a fermentation process. In in New York, we called them sour pickles. Outside of New York in the U.S., they're often called kosher dill pickles. 
But, you know, without knowing anything about how these pickles were made or the distinction that they were fermented, you know, from the earliest age, I loved pickles. And I was drawn to this flavor that I could now recognize as the flavor of lactic acid. And I would say, you know, more than anything, you know, that flavor led me into my interest in fermentation. Of course, there were other steps uh, along the way. For a couple of years in my 20s, I was following a macrobiotic diet, and macrobiotics places an emphasis on the digestive benefit of live pickles and other kinds of live fermented foods. And, you know, I started to observe that whenever I would eat these pickles that I'd been eating my entire life, that I could feel my salivary glands under my tongue uh, squirting out saliva. So, in a very um, concrete, tangible way, I began to associate this food that I had been enjoying my entire life with getting my digestive juices flowing. And so I really sort of sought it out more regularly as a health practice. Um, But it really took moving away from New York City to rural Tennessee, which I did 30 years ago in 1993. And um, among the many changes in my life at that time, I took up gardening. And you know, it was really from the experience of having a garden that I began to recognize the practical benefits of, of fermentation. So, you know, the first year that I was gardening, we had a really nice row of cabbages. And, you know, I was such a naive city kid, it had never occurred to me that in the garden, all of the cabbages would be ready at about the same time, and all of the radishes would be ready at about the same time. So, you know, when I was faced for the first time with this rather obvious aspect of agricultural production, I realized that, you know, sauerkraut is a food that I've always loved and that sauerkraut had something to do with preserving cabbage. And, you know, I went about looking for a recipe for how to make sauerkraut. I found it in the most obvious place, the joy of cooking. I followed the joy of cooking's recipe for sauerkraut. And, um, you know, it was incredibly delicious and I couldn't believe how simple it was. And it just sort of set me off experimenting and playing and, you know, well, what happens if I incorporate other vegetables? What happens if I use a different kind of seasoning? What happens if I leave it longer? What happens if I taste it sooner? And, uh, you know, I started playing around with fermenting vegetables and, you know, that led me very quickly into wanting to experiment with fermenting other things. Um, How do I make yogurt? How do I make country wine? You know, that first year I even learned, you know, how to make tempeh and how to make miso. So, you know, I really went down the rabbit hole and, you know, started experimenting with all different kinds of of fermentation. And, um, you know, my obsession with all things fermented has, um, you know, continued to this day. Yeah, I can almost feel my mouth watering as you're talking, thinking about really good krauts and uh, pickles. I haven't had a good pickle in a long time. There's a few other maybe foundational questions I want to go over. In your book, Fermentation, as metaphor, you write, quote, the only thing that makes do-it-yourself fermentation radical is context. Our contemporary system of food mass production, which is unsustainable in so many ways, Our dominant food system is polluting, resource depleting, and wasteful, and what it produces is nutritionally diminished, causing widespread disease, end quote. I think there's often this myth that our food system, because it's so big, is more efficient, or maybe that's just what they want us to believe, or that it's the only way to feed all the people on the planet is through this mass agriculture and food processing system. 
So I'm wondering, how does your work debunk this idea? Well, I mean, you know, ideas like this are are very um, pervasive. And, um, you know, because the vast majority of people are so completely cut off from the realities of food production, you know, it's very easy for people to believe that, you know, feeding ourselves requires, um, you know, factory farms, centralized production, you know, and, and, you know, with respect to fermentation specifically, because fermentation is simultaneously part of everybody's everyday life and completely invisible to most people, it's easy to project complexity upon it and imagine that you need um, a laboratory in an environment that you can control in an absolute way. And, you know, people imagine that it's a very high tech process when, you know, in fact, you know, all of the fermentation processes that we work with around the world, we've been practicing for, you know, hundreds or in most cases, thousands of years. And so, you know, they actually don't require um, huge amounts of technology. But, you know, I think because food production is so far from most people's lives, it's easy, it's easy for people to believe whatever. I see my work with fermentation as part of a, you know, a broader process of, of reclaiming food and, you know, reclaiming food can take many different forms, you know, from, um, you know, uh, uh, having a garden, uh, shopping at a farmer's market, um, you know, buying food from local people who've directly produced it to just, you know, learning how to cook things uh, from scratch in your own kitchen. You know, there's many different forms that reclaiming food can take, but it all involves, you know, demystifying the process of producing food and, you know, taking it away from, you know, the the large centralized actors and making it something that we participate in um, you know, in our own, own homes, wherever we live, and in our communities, wherever we live. And, you know, I, I mean, I, I don't dispute that there are, you know, certain kinds of foods, maybe that can be efficiently produced in, in centralized ways at, at high scale. But, you know, they're only as reliable as our distribution networks are. And, um, you know, one thing is for sure, which is that, you know, the distribution of you know food resources or any other kind of resources that are that are are centralized i mean it's it's great as long as it works but it's always subject to disruption and you know that disruption could have to do with climate and climate change it could have to do with you know fuel and um you know international control of fuel and economics it it can be certainly affected by you know wars and political violence um and and you know i think the pandemic illustrated for us how vulnerable supply chains can be so you know i i think that you know it behooves the people of every region in the world to expand the productive capacity for food at the local and regional level. You know, certainly I'm not against, um, you know, trade in food. I mean, I think it's, it's, it's really, you know, sort of fun and expands everybody's experiences to have access to foods from faraway places. But, you know, I think that it puts us in a, in an extremely vulnerable position to all be completely dependent upon food resources that are coming from faraway places. So, you know, I think that, you know, in whatever ways we can, at whatever level we can, 
it makes sense for all of us to, you know, get involved as producers of food and to support local and regional food production, um, you know, so as to, um, you know, get away from complete dependency on this sort of centralized, globalized food production uh, system. And, you know, in fact, if we're, if we're thinking about, you know, maximizing food production, you know, let's say per acre of land, you know, you definitely can produce more food on an acre of land with labor intensive methods that involve lots of people and not so many machines. Our system is all about maximizing production, you know, really per hour or day of human labor. And, you know, honestly, that's not the thing we have a shortage of. Now, I'm, I'm not an economist and I, you know, certainly don't know how we would get from point A to point B. But, you know, if truly our concern was maximizing production per unit of land, doing it in more labor intensive ways could increase that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In an interview with GQ, you say, quote, What we're seeing largely right now in the U.S. is this reaction to that. In our parents' and our grandparents' generations, there was this unprecedented amount of processed convenience food available and in the supermarket. And for many of them, that really represented liberation. But when you talk to people in their 20s to their 50s now, there's a recognition that a lot of this mass-produced food is of pretty poor quality. And they're like, well, I'm actually interested in understanding what I'm eating. I want to know how it's produced and where it comes from. Fermentation is a part of that answer, end quote. So I'd love to break down this quote a bit, and I'm wondering if some of the reaction to this processed food craze has also come in to the idea that in order to be healthy, we need to have constant access to fresh produce year-round in a way that doesn't honor the specific rhythms of the earth in the areas where we live, which I think is tapping into a similar consumer-based mindset, just with a different, you know, product. So yeah, how can fermented food challenge this idea and encourage us to think of health and seasonal eating differently and building community? You know, I just think that, you know, all of the repetitive tasks that go with food production, you know, from the garden to the harvest to cooking and fermenting, you know, this is really at the core of cultural knowledge. And so, you know, the, the practice of these processes, you know, it's, it's continuity of culture. It's, you know, passing, you know, skills and methods down from generation to generation. Uh, you know, it's a way for people of different generations to, you know, spend mutually enriching time with one another. You know, when people are uh, sitting together, let's say, you know, hulling uh, beans or, you know, any other kind of harvest related task, you know, their, their hands might be very much occupied, but, you know, they're, they're talking, they're listening, they're singing, you know, these are important cultural moments. And, you know, a lot of people's happiest memories, let's say, of their grandparents, you know, involve like food preparation with them. So, you know, the, the, the cultural aspects of it are, 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 are not insignificant. And, um, you know, it breaks my heart when I meet people who just like categorically don't cook, like, you know, whatever they eat is, you know, what's been prepared for them. And, 
you know, it, it just seems like that's a very disempowered place to be. And these are really important skills to um, acquire. You know, in terms of, of of fermented foods and and how that fits in with it, I mean, sure, a lot of fermented foods um, preserve the harvest. So certainly, like the fermentation of vegetables is generally, you know, bef- above all else, a strategy for preserving vegetables from seasons of relative plenty for people to eat in seasons where you know they don't have fresh food resources uh, available but you know there's a there's a whole range of practical benefits to fermentation and preservation is only one of them just to give you an example like nobody has ever fermented a grain or a bean in order to preserve it because you know these foods in their mature state are, are are very stable as long as you keep a grain of wheat or uh, or a bean dry it will preserve um, and so you know generally the first step in fermenting these foods is to introduce water to reawaken dormant microorganisms that haven't been able to function because of the lack of water but the fermentation can make these things more easily digestible. They can make these things lighter. They can make these things more flavorful. So, yeah, there's a whole range of potential benefits from fermented foods and beverages. And, of course, we can't forget alcohol because, you know, far and away the the most widespread form of fermentation is the fermentation of, um, you know, every different kind of carbohydrate source you could imagine into alcohol. I think it's really important for us to understand the value of culture, community building, especially as an antidote to what's happening to our communities now. But anyways, I could stay on that topic and really dig through it the whole session. But I, I do want to talk about gut health with you know the concept of it as a trend versus reality. And as you often say, quote, fermentation is not a fad, it is a fact, end quote. And it's clear that fermentation is vital to human life as we know it. You know, something that does seem to be more of a fad, though, is the way we talk about and market fermentation and fermented products. And I'm thinking especially of the recent rise of gummies and diets uh, and the probiotic sodas that are sold to us as ways to improve gut health. So I'd just love to hear why you think this has recently cropped up as a marketable trend and how we can talk about fermentation ways that are evergreen, you know, and not focused on selling a particular product in that immediate moment. You know, really fermentation is a manifestation of the fact of biodiversity. You know, fermentation historically was a bit of a of a of a mystery. Um, and, you know, it was really only in the 19th century that science came to understand that fermentation was a biological phenomenon uh, based on the activity of microorganisms, bacteria and fungi that are part of the food. You know, the, the emerging science of microbiology since then has, um, you know, come to the realization that all multicellular forms of life, including ourselves, including uh, all animals, including all plants, are host to elaborate communities of microorganisms. Uh, You know, so really, you know, no organism is an island. You know, every organism, um, you know, exists in uh, uh, the complexity of biodiversity. 
and you know, I think that the, the 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 reason why fermentation is practiced everywhere on the earth is the simple reality that all of the things that make up our food, all of the plants and all of the animal products that we eat are populated by these elaborate communities of microorganisms. And um, these microorganisms can um, develop in different ways. So, um, you know, these microorganisms could decompose our food into a disgusting, ugly mess that nobody would ever want to put into their mouths, you know, or, uh, um, you know, with certain simple environmental manipulations, we can guide the microbial development so that Organisms that either help preserve the food for a longer period of time or, you know, break down some toxic compounds that could be in the food or just break down macronutrients into simpler, more elemental forms that our bodies can absorb more easily, you know, or just make the food more, more flavorful. Um, or produce alcohol. These all there are all these potential positive outcomes. So you know, whenever you ferment food successfully, you know, a you prevent it from decomposing into a disgusting, ugly mess that nobody would ever eat, and b you're turning it into something with these additional practical benefits for us. And, and so. You know, I think that, you know, fermentation is a manifestation of biodiversity. The everything we could possibly eat is a manifestation of uh, a biodiversity. And, um, you know, the cultures that have developed in different parts of the world largely have to do with, you know, how people interact with the other life forms that are around them in acquiring food. And so, you, you know, our very, you know, sort of cultural existence and our ability to have food is sort of also based on this uh, uh, biodiversity. So, you know, it's all, it's all very interesting. And yet the fact that so few people are directly involved in this, you know, sort of speaks to humans trying to, you know, let's say opt out of these most basic relationships that define every other kind of organism. I mean, every kind of organism, uh, you know, is interacting intimately with its environment as it feeds itself. And, you know, we have, you know, tried to take ourselves out of this equation. And, uh, you know, supposedly we have liberated ourselves by, you know, not having to, you know, spend each day uh, procuring the food resources to get through that day. But, you know, in, in fact, it has, you know, alienated us from our environments and, you know, led to this incredible environmental destruction. So, you know, I think it's just made us less attuned to our environments and careless about them. So, uh, you know, our gut health also is a manifestation of this biodiversity. And, um, you know, I think one of the reasons why, you know, over the last 20 or 25 years, there has been, you know, so much more, um, you know, interest in fermented foods and beverages, awareness uh, about fermented foods and beverages, um, you know, marketing related to fermented foods and beverages is this growing awareness of the biodiversity within us. So, you know, like, you know, in my growing up in uh, uh, 20th century United States, I never heard a good word about bacteria. Bacteria were the cause of disease, period. And, you know, we needed to avoid them and we needed to destroy them by any means necessary. 
I would say, you know, pretty much since the dawn of the new millennium, probably dating to the Human Microbiome Project, there has been growing awareness that bacteria are actually an important part of our own human functionality. And that, you know, the um, incredible populations of bacteria that exist, you know, in our intestines most prominently, but in many other uh, uh, parts of our bodies, uh, you know, that these bacteria give us a lot of our functionality. They enable of, us to effectively digest the food that we eat. What we call our immune systems are, are largely the work of bacteria uh, uh, in the gut. And bacteria play a role in regulating lots of the chemical processes in our bodies. So for instance, and serotonin and other chemical compounds that determine how we think and how we feel are regulated in ways that are not fully understood by bacteria in the gut. So the, the health and vitality and biodiversity of the bacterial communities within us have great significance to our health and well-being. Um, and I think that this fact, you know, newly established for many people is, you know, driving a lot of the awareness of fermentation, interest in fermentation, and certainly the marketing of a lot of different kinds of fermented products. Now, the products of fermentation themselves, I mean, you know, they have enjoyed enduring popularity. And, you know, wherever our great grandparents might have been from, um, you know, fermented foods and beverages were just as prominent in their diets as they are in anyone's diet today, potentially much more so. Um, um, so the products themselves, are, you know, are not new. It's just, you know, people's awareness and thinking about them and some of the marketing strategies are the things that are new. Uh, I really feel so relieved learning about the truths of the immune system and bacteria. It's actually been a really healing journey for me, just intellectually understanding my own body a bit more. I, I think it's just really interesting. And, and it, it actually kind of brings me to this idea that I feel like you've spoken to in a few of your interviews, which is being open to new forms of life. And in an interview with Emergence Magazine, you say, quote, in our human societies, this idea of protecting the purity of our society against the contamination of outside ideas is, well, it's been weaponized, really. The way people project fear of the, quote, other has been such a theme throughout human history, end quote. And so, yeah, I guess I'm kind of combining this idea of purity in terms of bacteria and purity of thoughts, too, and wondering how does this idea of purity come to hurt us and separate us from key aspects of ourselves and our communities? Well, I mean, certainly in the, um, in the literal realm of, um, you know, our lives and the foods that we eat, you know, purity is completely a, a fantasy. And, you know, I, I would argue that in terms of like, you know, ideas and heritage, um, you know, Purity is 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 an abstraction in in that realm as well, in 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 every realm. Realm. I mean, purity simply does not exist. So you know, in in terms of like you know making fermented foods, you know, sometimes people who watch me demonstrate fermenting vegetables are are shocked that I'm not like you know using some kind of a chemical to sterilize the jar that we're about to put the vegetables in. 
you know, or that I'm not like wearing gloves or doing something to prevent the bacteria on my hands from getting onto the vegetables. But the point is that, you know, all plants growing out of soil on planet Earth are host to lactic acid bacteria, the ones that are going to ferment them for us, but also they're host to many other things. And, um, you know, which organisms are going to, to, to dominate, you know, just depends completely on, you know, the environment that we create. And that's what the practice of fermentation is. And in the, in the fermentation of vegetables, generally, it's just about getting the vegetables submerged to protect them from the steady uh, uh, flow of air with oxygen. And um, protecting the vegetables from air with oxygen means that the spores of molds that are present there can't develop. So, so getting them submerged is really all it takes to assure that the lactic acid bacteria are going to dominate. And this happens every single time. I mean, fermented vegetables are about as safe as food gets. You know, there's just no, um, you know, recorded case histories of food poisoning or illness from fermented vegetables. And I would just point out that, that we have plenty of case histories of illness from raw vegetables. You know, this year it was um, red onions. You know, one year it was scallions. One year it was lettuce. One year it was tomatoes. One year it was uh, apples. So, you know, clearly there's the possibility that vegetables or fruits could become contaminated by um, salmonella or other organisms that can make people sick. You know, usually the story is manure from a factory farm uphill washes over a field of vegetables and they're contaminated that way. It could just as easily happen from sloppy handling, people failing to wash their hands at critical moments uh, uh, and handling the food. But even if you took vegetables that had cells of, say, salmonella on them, if you shred them, salt them, get them submerged under their own juices uh, and ferment them, well, the lactic acid bacteria will always dominate. And as they uh, metabolize carbohydrates into lactic acid and acidify the environment, if there happen to be some cells of salmonella or other potentially pathogenic organisms, they will perish. It's just a very convenient uh, fact for us that, you know, the organisms that have the potential to make us sick can't survive in an acidic environment. So, you know, fermentation really is a strategy for, for, for safety as much as anything. But, you know, in my career as a fermentation educator, I have encountered a lot of, you know, people projecting their generalized anxiety about microorganisms and bacteria uh, or about food preservation in general onto the idea of fermentation. But, you know, the reality is that, you know, fermentation is a strategy for food safety above all else, really.
going back to the Emergence Magazine article, you continue by saying, quote, in both literal fermentation and metaphorical fermentation, the fermentation is breaking down previous forms into new forms, end quote. And so I'm wondering, how can we come to embrace a way of being that is open to experiment and open to new forms and to the messiness that comes from allowing the old forms to rot and decay into something else entirely? I guess I would challenge a little bit of how you phrase that question, because, you know, generally when food is fermenting, it's not rotting. You know, sure, microorganisms are breaking it down, but generally we're not inventing the wheel. We're not creating something completely new. We are, you know, sort of following a, a way that other people have done things. And, you know, generally it's fairly predictable you know, what will happen in a given setup. So, um, you know, we're, we're not rotting the food at all. You know, we are, we are processing the food in some generally straightforward way. We are um, creating conditions that we have seen or been told will yield the desired result. And then we are sort of, you know, implementing um, you know, a plan that many other people before us have have implemented. So I think it's like, you know, it's largely a matter of uh, having confidence in these traditional methods. I want to talk for for a moment about about starters. You know, one way that people in the present moment start fermentation processes is to buy a starter. Like I think the most widespread example of this would be the packet of yeast that you can buy in any supermarket. But, you know, that packet of yeast, which is a, a fungus, Saccharomyces cerevisiae, um, you know, that, that, that packet of yeast really has only been commercially available since the 20th century. So, you know, we, we've been baking bread for something like 10,000 years. We've been, um, you know, making wine, making beer for uh, similar periods of time. There was no such thing as a packet of yeast until the 20th century. So for like, you know, 9,900 years, the only way anyone was making these foods was by working with the food to develop the yeast that's already there in the food. And, and that's what sort of, um, you know, all the traditional techniques involve is, you know, what I call wild fermentation. And my first book about fermentation was called Wild Fermentation. But this isn't a phrase that I made up. It's found throughout the literature. And it describes any fermentation based on the organisms that are there in the food already, or to a limited degree, in the environment around us or uh, uh, on our hands. But generally, it's in the food. So, you know, when you shred cabbage or other vegetables to make sauerkraut, the bacteria is already in the cabbage or the other vegetables. When you um, press grapes to make wine, the yeast is already on the grapes. And, and so, you know, this is wild fermentation, just working with, you know, the life forces that are already there on the food. And the vast majority of fermentation processes are wild fermentations. And, you know, anything that involves, uh, you know, a little packet of a starter, you know, I mean, that, that, that can be a very effective method to use, but that's like a very, very modern technological method. 
But also if we're going to rely upon, you know, the, the organisms that are there, like they have to exist in, you know, high enough concentration that they can easily become dominant. And that's why we don't have to worry about sterilizing things when we're dealing with wild fermentation, because, you know, there's like a critical mass of the organisms that we need. We're creating conditions favorable to them. And, um, you know, in a very reliable way, they come to dominate the environment. And so, you know, all of these ideas of, of, of sterilizing things, like they, they are just born by, by the use of pure culture starters, this sort of, you know, new method of fermentation that was developed during the course of the 20th century. Um, and so if you're going to sort of kill all the organisms in your substrate and then just introduce a single pure culture starter, you know, then with that method of fermentation, our, our notions of, you know, uh, uh, sterility and purity become somewhat more important than they are in the traditional context uh, where we're relying on these um, uh, uh, heavy uh, uh, existing populations of organisms on the foods that we're eating. And by the way, the people who, you know, developed and, and, and figured out these methods, they did not have the benefit of microscopes or um, the ability to identify specific organisms. So, you know, they were based on, on results that if you do this, it works, but without necessarily understanding the specific, you know, mechanisms of the process that, that's going on. Mm -hmm. oh, I love talking about wild fermentation and yeast. It's really exciting to me. And I remember when I first tried it myself about maybe, I don't know, 10 years ago now, I did it with wine berries in Pennsylvania. And I actually experimented. I had a couple starters I bought from the store, and then I just did the wild ferment. And I love wild fermentation. I love the taste. It honestly feels much better on my body. Like with wines, there's such this movement with organic wines, but like organic wine doesn't mean that it has wild fermentation. It just means that the grape itself is organic, but it could have sulfites, could have all these additives in there. And yeah, there's just something about wild fermentation and the flavor. It's so complex to me and it really calls to me. And I, I'm thinking about, you know, home fermentation, wild fermentation more. And I'm wondering how traditional ferments also connect us to the unique biodiversity of the areas around us. Yeah. Just wondering if you could elaborate more on the ways fermentation can tap into biodiversity in general. Well, sure. I mean, just, you know, the word that you just used, uh, um, you know, complexity, what gives fermented foods or beverages complexity in their flavor is precisely biodiversity because uh, you know with 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 a pure culture starter having a singular organism driving the fermentation you know typically you'll have you know just a single byproduct or um or, or a relatively small collection of metabolic byproducts but you know the more different organisms are involved in the fermentation the more flavor complexity you're going to have. And, you know, sometimes people appreciate that, that flavor complexity and sometimes people's, you know, taste gets so narrowed that they only want like the, the one singular uh, metabolic byproduct. But I mean, I, I absolutely agree with you that, you know, most products of wild fermentation just, you know, end up 
possessing uh, greater flavor complexity as a reflection of the you know greater biodiversity than uh, uh, ferments made through uh, uh, pure culture starters. And I think that you know in every realm of fermentation, in every category of fermented products, we could talk about. Um, breads made with natural fermentation. We could talk about, you know, raw milk cheeses where the fermentation is driven by organisms that are present in the milk. We could talk about, um, you know, salamis made without starter cultures. We could talk about uh, uh, natural wines. We could talk about spontaneously fermented uh, uh, beers. Um, you know, in, in every type of fermented product, I would say that the most outstanding examples are made using wild fermentation. Um, now, there's also greater variability. So, you know, you could have the most outstanding results. You could have some off flavors. And I think that, you know, one of the reasons why mass production has tended towards pure culture starters is just for, for greater predictability, greater consistency. And I mean, I, I understand that as, as a desire, but, you know, I, I, I just from my experience uh, of practicing wild fermentation and of getting to sample many foods and beverages produced by other people by means of wild fermentation, um, you know, I just think that the, the potential for flavor complexity and, and, and really outstanding results is, is much greater with wild fermentation. Mm -hmm. And in terms of the complexity and the flavor, I think that for folks who haven't been brought up eating fermented foods, it can be really hard for people to develop a palate for that. And so what would you say to people who are like, ooh, like, I don't like kraut or kimchi or I, you know, it's too bitter or it, because it doesn't taste like sugary processed high fructose corn syrup. You know, it doesn't taste like the highly processed food that a lot of us have been conditioned to gravitate to. So how, how can people get over that hump, do you think? Well, I, I would say that many of the flavors of fermentation, you know, are what we could describe as acquired tastes. And, you know, I think about Let's say let's talk about cheeses for 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 a moment. You know, I'm 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 61 years old. I have really come to like you know very very strong, uh, uh, flavorful cheeses. Um, you know, if I try to imagine like my nine year old self looking at some of the cheeses that I get excited about eating at this stage in my life, you know, nine year old Sandor would be just utterly horrified. Um, you know, as, as a kid, I did not like strong flavored cheeses. I like, I, I don't even think I tasted them. I mean, just the smell of them was enough to put me off, but, but I watched my parents enjoying cheese. Um, and I think that, you know, the way we come to acquire tastes that, that, that didn't come to us, um, uh, uh, from birth, is by watching other people take pleasure in them. So, I mean, I have a long list of things that as a kid were not appealing to me. I mean, coffee was not appealing to me. Now I can't imagine beginning a day without coffee. Beer was not appealing to me as a kid, and now I love beer. 
um, you know, these strong flavored cheeses. I mean, many other examples. So, you know, I mean, we, we, we learn, we learn to acquire the taste that we do acquire by sort of watching other people take pleasure in them. And I think that, you know, I don't have like an easy, uh, uh, recipe to recommend for people to sort of acquire the taste, but, I would point out a couple of things. Um, you know, first, I would point out that one of the great pleasures of fermenting food yourself is, you know, you can uh, control a lot of the variables. If you don't like extremely sour food, you can ferment it for a shorter period of time and it'll be less sour. So, um, um, you know, you can make it less sour or more sour you know, as you prefer or as your partner or your children or whoever you might be trying to feed uh, 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 prefers. You you have control over the process, you know, how salty it is, how, how sour it becomes, how spicy it is and all of these things. And so, you know, you can find like the, the flavor that you're comfortable with. You know, the other thing is don't think about these foods as, you know, something to be eaten on its own, although they can be very delicious eaten that way. Um, you know, fermented vegetables are really condiments and, and, you know, therefore, you know, making other foods more exciting and, and interesting. So if you think about sauerkraut, like let's say on a, on a sandwich, it'll just, you know, sort of add, add a layer of flavor to, to the sandwich. And I think that, you know, sometimes with foods that seem too strong to just eat on their own, if we think about incorporating them into something else where their flavor will be spread into more food is a is is a great way to make the flavors more acceptable. And third, what I would just say is like, you know, I've met so many people who just tell me as if it's a it's a fact that like kids don't like the flavor of fermented foods. I mean, that is absolutely not true. Like kids can be very receptive to these foods. Young kids you know, if you if if a kid is you know nine years old, the first time they're tasting sauerkraut, they're probably going to reject it because it hasn't been in their palate. But you know, if you um you know if you take a like a young child who is um you know sort of first being introduced to solid foods and start incorporating some of the flavors of fermentation into the food, they very likely will will accept them and love them for their entire lives and. You know, I've even done, a, I've even read a couple of articles suggesting that like if a, a woman during her pregnancy is eating fermented foods, then the baby will be born with more um, openness to, to those flavors. I was also hearing in your response was just the creativity and even the culinary artistic aspect of using certain foods or fermented foods. Um, there was an interview you did with NPR in 2012 and you said, quote, we reject certain foods because it is rotten. Certain food we can see as fresh, but there is this creative space between fresh and rotten food 
where most of human culture's most prized delicacies and culinary achievements exist, end quote. So yeah, I'd like to riff a bit more on how does fermentation allow us to express our creativity alongside practicality? And how can we apply an experimental and open approach to the things that sustain us? Well, I mean, as as I've mentioned a couple of times, the, the the practice of fermentation is, you know, really all about manipulating environmental conditions in ways that encourage the growth of the organisms that we want and simultaneously discourage the growth of the organisms that we don't want. But, you know, with, with fermenting vegetables, what that means is getting vegetables submerged. And there's, you know, that can be done in different ways. The sauerkraut dry salting method, you just shred vegetables to create surface area. You add salt, the salt through osmosis draws some of the juice out of the vegetables. The vegetables get nice and juicy, and then you pack them into the vessel. Now, what vegetables you use, what combination of vegetables you use, what kinds of seasonings you use, how you shred the vegetables, whether it's coarsely or finely, um, you know, all these things are open to interpretation. So as long as you get the vegetables submerged, I mean, you can be incredibly creative about it. And, you know, I mean, I had a young woman show up at one of my workshops with vanilla sauerkraut. and She had minced vanilla beans into the shredded cabbage and uh, it was delicious. It wasn't something I ever would have thought of, but it was great. I've had I've had so many curry krauts where people incorporate uh, uh, curry seasonings into the sauerkraut and um, and that works really well. You can incorporate cooked things. I met a woman whose family was from a town in Poland where everybody bulked up their sauerkraut with mashed potatoes. So, you know, you can incorporate, you know, cooked elements or um, I've made kimchi with little pockets of sticky rice in it. Um, so, so, you know, really like, you know, once you understand the, the condition that you need to create, well, then you have all of this creative leeway to, you know, to experiment with, you know, different vegetables, uh, different kinds of chopping, different combinations of vegetables, different seasonings, different amounts of salt, different lengths of fermentation. So it actually lends itself to, uh, I mean, as much creativity as you want to bring to it. Mm -hmm. It's exciting to hear you speak about this and the creativity and of course the health benefits and the cultural benefits. It's really, it's really beautiful. And I am thinking, you know, how we, how we've lost the practice of fermentation and how we get that back and why teaching is so important. And in your book, Fermentation as Metaphor, you write, quote, our dominant food system de-skills and disempowers people, distancing us from the natural world and making us completely dependent on systems of mass production and distribution, which are fine as long as they function, but are vulnerable to many potential disruptions from pandemics to flu shortages to price spikes to war and natural disasters, end quote. So yeah, it makes me think of just how many practical skills people have lost over the last few hundred years. And I'm wondering, how is teaching fermentation and as you've witnessed that, what it means for people to reconnect to these skills? Well, I, you know, for 20 years now, I really have been, you know, devoted more or less full time to being a fermentation educator. 
And, um, you know, my experience from the very beginning was that there is a hunger for this information because, you know, so many people possess in their living memory images of, you know, something that a grandparent was doing every year, whether it was making sauerkraut, making wine, making vinegar, whatever, whatever it was. But, you know, then as, um, you know, supermarkets, convenience foods, um, uh, you know, all these things, um, you know, became more and more available in a lot of families. Um, these practices ended up, you know, falling by the wayside. The practices didn't get passed down to the next generation. But sometimes just like a generation or two later, people still have the memory and regret that they didn't learn. Um, and so, you know, I mean, my life as a fermentation educator has just been full of people getting excited that they can reclaim something that they remember their grandparents doing that sort of, you know, fell by the wayside in the interim. And that's, um, you know, that's very exciting and, and, and very gratifying. And, you know, the, the things that get people interested in fermentation are quite varied. I mean, sometimes people are interested in, you know, the probiotics and improving their health or their digestion. Uh, sometimes it's these sort of, you know, cultural ideas and people wanting to, you know, reclaim some aspect of their, of their cultural lineage you know, sometimes it's, um, you know, people who are moving back to the land and just want to, um, um, you know, sort of learn skills for turning the, f the produce that they can grow into, you know, the foods and beverages that people like to drink. So, you know, there's a lot of reasons why people are interested in this. But, you know, my general experience is that, you know, many people are extremely interested in fermentation and find it relevant. And, you know, sometimes, sometimes I'll meet people who hear about what I do and they'll make, they'll make a face, um, um, you know, sort of indicating that they hate fermented foods. And, you know, they're probably just associating fermentation with like, you know, the strongest flavored fermented food that they ever ate that was too, uh, uh, strong for them or, or something like that. But, you know, almost every individual in almost every part of the world eats and drinks products of fermentation every day. You know, your coffee is fermented, your bread is fermented, your cheese is fermented, the condiments that you put on your food are either directly fermented or rely upon vinegar, which is fermented, chocolate is fermented, vanilla is fermented, um, you know, just an incredible range of the, you know, foods that people eat and drink every day. And I'm, you know, I'm just giving you examples that would be, um, you know, pretty common in a standard American diet, but in different regions of the world, there would be, you know, different kinds of, 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 of fermentations that people are, are eating regularly. But it, it is just like a prominent feature of human culture in every part of the world. I had no idea chocolate was fermented. That's new to me and makes me feel even better about the chocolate bar I ate yesterday. <laughs> Although it was milk chocolate. I don't know if that cancels out some of the health benefits. Um, <laughs> well, I would also just say things don't have to be healthy to be fermented. I mean, you know, like just an incredible range of foods and beverages people people eat and drink are are, are, are fermented. And many fermented foods are are, are extremely healthy. But just because, you know, it doesn't mean that, you know, if you switched your diet to eating only that, you would be healthier. I don't think anyone who's eating only bread is healthier. I don't think anyone who's eating only cheese is healthier. I don't think anyone who's eating 
only sauerkraut is healthier. I don't think anyone who's drinking only beer is healthier. Um, you know, I think with all of these things, you know, moderation and balance are what, you know, sort of make it, make it healthy or, or unhealthy. Mm -hmm. It's so fascinating. Everything that we've covered today, it's really, it's inspiring because so much of it's practical. And I love that. Like, I really love that it can be done by anybody in their home and you don't need to buy packets of yeast and you don't need to have so much experience to start. And I think there's something so beautiful about the grassroots quality of getting in touch with your food in this way. So thank you so much, Sandra, for your time and your inspiration and your knowledge that you've been cultivating over so many years. Well, it's a pleasure to be with you and to have the opportunity to uh, speak with you about uh, fermented foods and beverages and biodiversity. Thanks for listening to For the Wild. The music in today's episode is by Matthew David. For the Wild is created by Ayana Young, Erica Ekram, Julia Jackson, Jackson Krupp, Jose Alejandro Rivera, Bailey Bigger, and Evan Tenenbaum. <laughs>